Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Luke's English Podcast, a podcast for people learning English, British English in this case. My name is Luke. Welcome. Uh, Here is a brand new episode for you. I hope you enjoy it. There's a video version, too, on YouTube. Yes, hello, listeners. Hello to all my listeners uh, all over the, what is it, the world, the, the world of Lepland, podcast land, Lepland, whatever you want to call it. Um... You might be able to hear the sound of my computer's fan. Can you hear that? Is it noisy? I don't know if you can hear it. It's probably creating a low level of hiss in the background, which most of you can't hear and are not bothered by, but it's the sort of thing that I notice. Anyway, there's hiss in the background. Why? Because my computer is currently working hard to encode the video version of this episode. I've just finished editing the video together and um, I'm, you know, the, the, the my computer's going like that. The fans are going in order to keep the computer cool so it can encode this video. I'm asking it to do some heavy work here. I need a new computer. I really do. I've been using this since 2013. Luke, you're rambling again. Let's get on with it. Okay. So, This is an interview episode with a guest. I should say that this might be a difficult one, depending on your level of English, of course. My guest and I are talking about a specific artistic and cultural movement that happened in England in the 1970s. A specific cultural and artistic movement. I say specific, uh, but it actually included many different types of art. It was actually very diverse and varied. Many different types of art, theatre performance, music and community work, all sort of packaged together in one movement, but revolutionary in the nicest way possible. So not those kinds of violent revolutions that you might imagine, you know, the proper sort of (laughs) French revolutions and stuff. No, um, the, the nicest sort of English style revolution. Oh, cup of tea, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Bit of cake and tea, and but still revolutionary in its own way. Um, and that should become clear as you listen to this. Anyway, an alternative, subversive counterculture arts movement. The reasons I think this might be difficult for you to follow are these. So first of all, language, of course. There's a lot of vocabulary used to describe and discuss art and culture and other things. Um, So a wide variety of language here, quite specific descriptive language. Also the fact that there are references to things you might not know about already, including things like the names of artists, poets, musicians and specific locations in England. And obviously, if you don't know those reference points, then things might get confusing. And it might be difficult simply because of the fact that this is quite a difficult arts movement to understand for anyone. 
native and non-native speakers alike. Also, my guest and I aren't really grading our English or slowing down a lot, and I'm aware of that, okay? I am presenting this to you as a piece of authentic listening practice, which can be really good for your English if you're willing to tolerate the bits that you don't fully understand. Luke, they know this already, especially the long-term listeners. They already know this stuff. I know, but, you know, sometimes these things need to be stated, don't you think? Anyway, so my point is, it might be tricky to follow, but I do hope you persevere. I think that as you continue to listen, the concepts and events that we are discussing will become clearer to you, and really exploring things that you might not be familiar with can be a great way to pick up new language. So this should be a chance to learn about culture and, by extension, the words we use to describe that culture. The video version has some annotations on the screen with bits of vocabulary and some pictures, and the notes on the website will also include a vocabulary list, which will help you if you check it. I mean, it'll only help you if you check it. (laughs) If you don't check it, it won't help you. I think you understand. Also, you'll find a transcript for the introduction that you're listening to. Right, let's get straight into it then. Uh, There will be another little introduction from me after the jingle. But that's what I do, isn't it? You know, I do. I do introductions, but I'm only trying to help. Okay, so leave your thoughts and responses in the comments section. I will chat to you again near the end of this conversation. But now it's time for the jingle. And here it is. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Hello, video viewers. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Very nice to have you with me again. Now, as you know, in episodes of my podcast, I often talk about language learning, and I often teach you specific things like vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation, especially in the premium episodes, of course. But also on the podcast, I do episodes which are not specifically about the English language or about learning or teaching English. Um, I also like to present you with things that I hope are simply interesting to listen to or episodes which focus on culture rather than language. And this episode is one of those. This is a conversation which focuses on British culture and art. And it's an interview about an artistic movement which took place in England in the 1970s. So it's not about English, but it's all in English, of course. And I'm presenting it to you as part of your regular English listening practice. So this is an interview with artist, illustrator and author Penny Dale, who uh, was one of the members of the Bath Arts Workshop which is the artistic movement that I'll be talking about with Penny today. So let me give you some context just to explain how this interview was set up. Uh, And this will not take 15 minutes, I promise. So first of all, there's a new book available and it's just been published. It's called Bath Arts Workshop Counterculture in the 1970s. And as the title suggests, it's all about a counterculture arts movement which took place in the southwest of England in the 1970s. We'll explain what a counterculture arts movement means in a few minutes. One of the people involved in that artistic movement, and also involved in the publishing of this new book, is Penny Dale. Penny is an illustrator and also an author of children's books, an award-winning author, I might add. 
She's illustrated and written some very popular kids' books in the UK, and we have a lot of them at home here. My daughter loves them. We read them all the time. But back in the 1970s, Penny hadn't begun that part of her career yet and was involved in this conceptual and subversive arts movement, the Bath Arts Workshop. Penny is a friend of the family. She's a very good friend of my mum and dad. And in fact, it was my mum who suggested that Penny could be a good person for me to interview and that both the Bath Arts Workshop and her career as a children's author would be interesting things to talk about. So that's the plan. This this will be two separate episodes, I think. This one about the arts movement and then another one about the writing of children's books. So that'll be part one and part two. This is part one, of course. So let's focus on the, the Bath Arts Workshop. And by the way, listeners, Bath is a town in the, in the southwest of England, right? Uh, we're not talking about bathtubs where you go to wash yourself and play with little yellow rubber ducks and boats and things. No. So so this isn't an art movement that involved people sitting in bathtubs or anything. But then again, it was the 1970s, so, you know, that isn't completely far-fetched. Anything's possible. Okay, so that's that's probably enough of an introduction from me. Let's now meet Penny and start the interview properly. So, hi, Penny. How are you today? Hi, Luke. How are you? Looking good. Fine, thanks. I'm except feeling slightly frazzled. Oh. It's an interesting word. Yes. What's frazzled? Just slightly uh, tired. Frayed and tired and a bit distracted. Yeah, just like uh, a bit tired because yesterday, uh, at the, the weekend, we went, uh, for, we went, had a weekend away in the countryside and that involved driving. And then we drove back, you know, yesterday, mm. late afternoon. And it was supposed to be a two and a half hour trip. And it, you know, when you're using GPS or satellite navigation on in your car and yes. the estimated time of arrival just keeps changing, <laughs> getting longer. Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we were like 45 minutes away from home for about two hours is what it felt like. Oh dear. So I'm, you know, it was a long car journey yesterday. So I'm feeling a bit, uh, a mm. bit frazzled, but I'm fine. How, how about you? Yeah. More or less awake, I think. Now, yes, mm-hmm. also had a really busy weekend as well. Um, so I think, I think I'm ready to try and sum up what the counterculture was, but it's not an easy ask. So yeah. we'll, we'll, um, we'll have a go. Yes, we'll give it a good shot. So yeah, let's talk about the Bath Arts Workshop. Let's go back to the 1970s in Bath, the <laughs> southwest of England, a counterculture arts movement. Maybe we can start with that. What does that mean then, a counterculture art movement? I think we know what the culture part means, mm. but what about the counter part? What, mm. what is a counterculture movement? What do we mean by counterculture? Well, I think it's um, an expression that maybe even started in America. I don't know, but it was around, you know, the time of Woodstock, um, and also in in London arts, there was an arts lab in Drury Lane in London. So there was a movement. It wasn't really the hippie movement. It was more um, a kind of came out of that and was um, people taking a position where they were saying there was a different way to do things than all out capitalism. Um, there was a way that the arts could be um, used in a more, um, kindly and productive way with more people being included. So I think it was a movement about inclusion and countering the sort of elitism of a lot of art. 
So a lot of, yes. you know, classical music gallery going. <clears throat> and we were talking about Bath, the Bath, the place, <laughs> not the Bath. Um, is a town in Somerset in England. And it was a, it became a kind of a hub for alternative, which is another word for this kind of culture and movement. So alternative technology as well as art. There just were lots of young people at the time. I think that it was the first time since the war generation or the First and Second World War that our parents were part of were looking for an alternative and had time and an environment where they could experiment more. Um, so the, there wasn't such a pressure to – it was possible to rent a cheap, really cheap flats and things and – you could live, students had grants that, you know, they didn't have to pay back. There was just time and breathing space then to think of other ways of doing things. So, yeah. So the counterculture part, as you said, is more about, yeah, trying to, uh, a movement that was sort of critical of the general current culture, especially in art, which, as you said, yeah. was quite elitist. And it was all about, changing the um changing the general culture and finding ways of introducing new ideas that perhaps were critical of the current state of affairs yes. and doing this in in inventive ways that's um, right and just setting up um actual physical spaces where all everybody could join in that was that was the sort of ethos it was open to open to everyone um not expensive accessible um uh, yes, inclusivity was was the thing, and there were various all over this country and all over Europe and USA, all sorts of places. Uh, young people were having these ideas, and mo movements were starting. So the workshop in Bath was just um, one. I encountered it early on, and it had sprung out of um, the London Arts Lab. Phil Shepherd who was in the London Arts Lab, hitchhiked to Bath and had these ideas about wanting to do something like that in another place. And he'd written letters to councils all over the UK saying, can we start an arts lab where all sorts of people can come and try all sorts of things from theatre and film and music? Um, and, you know, he, he just put this letter out and in fact got a response from the council in Bath that was probably the only one. Hello viewers and listeners, I hope that you're enjoying this conversation. You just heard Penny there mention Phil Shepherd, who was one of the founding members of the Bath Arts Workshop. And after this conversation, Penny suggested that I might like to include a short video clip of Phil himself describing counterculture and explaining what counterculture means, because he does it in a very clear and concise way. So this is Phil Shepherd describing the counterculture and this was uh, recorded on video by Richard Wyatt, and the credit for this little clip goes to bathmuseum.com. But this is Phil Shepherd, founder of the Bath Arts Workshop, explaining uh, what counterculture means. What exactly was the Arts Workshop? We, we hear a lot about counterculture. Can yeah. you explain? What the counterculture was? Yeah, well, I think the counterculture was a kind of reaction to, I would go as far as to say it was young people, predominantly, saying 
the kind of world that's being built in the shadow of the world wars, which was very, very prominent in those days, as you may remember, was not the kind of world they wanted, we wanted. We didn't kind of particularly see this kind of drive for materialism and prosperity and a kind of competitive environment as one that promised very much for us, I sense. So we were looking for alternatives. So to me, the counterculture came from a kind of deep, unconscious yearning for something different. And it manifests in a lot of different ways. Um, at its heart, I think it was about compassion and kindness and collectivism and people working together. A, sen- a thing about freedom that wasn't about just about this notion of individual freedom, I'm all right, Jack, but actually freedom being a collective thing. But connectedness, I suppose, being connected to other people and connected to nature. And Bath's a medium-sized, fairly touristy now city, um, but full of architecture, incredible Georgian architecture. So it's quite a special place or a particular place. And it had a very classical festival there that used to go on every year with um, classical concerts and opera and literary stuff. So what Phil was wanting to start off, he and a friend called Abel came to Bath and just began. People coalesced really quickly, like there was a sort of specific gravity that attracted people. And within, you know, a few months, a first building had been found and they were putting on sort of mini festivals in the parks of Bath, you know, with music and poetry and loads of kids and inflatables. And all this stuff happened really quite quickly. So there was a big appetite for it, Um, you know, and then the workshop became established as it had some premises and, you know, lots of people became full time and some finance was um, eventually achieved to uh, keep it going, some grants and things from the Arts Council. But it started very small and became really quite um, a magnet for theatre and all sorts of other arts. How did you actually get involved in it then? Well, I I moved to Bath when I was 16 and... um, I was halfway through my sixth form, which is, you know, the the final year of school or high school um, in the States. Mm. Um, So I was 16 when I moved to Bath, 15, 16, um, and was wandering around this amazing city thinking, because I'd grown up in Devon, which was um, a very country, a deep countryside, really, in a tiny school and small grammar school I went to Mm. so Bath was like a really big deal and I didn't know anyone and my friend and I were were there um, in the summer holidays before I was due to go and start a foundation course um, in art and she and I were at a music event in the park um, that we didn't realize was organized by Bath Arts Workshop so we were at this kind of like a pop festival Hawkwind were there and poets and Jeremy Fry's grounds, I think. So there was this wonderful event we were at. Then it rained and we went back down into the town where Bath Arts Workshop had taken over three huge Georgian buildings in Great Pulteney Street, which is a big, wide kind of boulevard, which they'd been loaned by a really 
amazing guy who was a millionaire that <laughs> he was a millionaire but was um completely um probably a, like a socialist millionaire so he'd made some money in london in property and then he came to bath he bought three hotels he bought the theater royal he had like helicopters and things and he said you can have a helicopter for your pop group to the workshop you can have my hotel i've just bought these this huge three buildings and have have it for your festival you know fine and so, so they'd wow. taken over so my friend and i came into this street we were guided because this first event had been rained off and there was just the sound of incredible uh, like pop music and stuff coming out of this hotel that was sort of pulsing and all lit up and inside was all sorts of theater groups and hawkwind again were playing there there was a kids theater group there were theater companies from all over alternative theater companies in different rooms there were um an exhibition on the top floor an upside down room a room painted like um blue with sky or i mean it was just a kind of alternative heaven yeah. culturally it was like completely different to the bath festival so we encountered this incredible event before we knew exactly what the workshop were right and then roll on a couple of months i met uh, with with the same friend i met a couple of people from the workshop at another outdoor event and we just got talking to them and just it felt like we we're all from the same tribe so very quickly i not my friend got involved um with the workshop and said can i help and that was how i found out what they really did and how they worked okay and so what sort of things did you do then when you started working with them well um the, the at first um i i just went along to help with one um gig which was basically the workshop had several kind of departments so there were about 12 full-time people there was a little shop where they sold um handmade things and stuff to raise some money there was um an office of sorts where things were organized and there was a touring theater company there was a pastiche rock and roll group called Rocky Ricketts and the Jet Pilots of Jive with the Rockettes that did quite a lot of gigs around the area and all over the place there was a community transport thing that helped people with the removals and things um people that couldn't afford um there was an adventure playground just loads of different sort of activities in the community so i went along to a gig just to help with props and costumes ostensibly and it was an eye popping experience um why because <laughs> well the the rocky rickets um i can show you a picture here i'm just so the rocky show... rickets are a band right so they, you yes. said they were a pastiche so they're kind of a comedy band yes or... kind of yeah? a comedy band so um i can actually just I mean, it's so complicated to kind of cover all the different things that the workshop did. So anyway, yeah. this one thing. Don't worry, we so, can't cover everything, but we, we you know, <laughs> we can't. It's all in the book anyway, but uh, we can book. kind of just sort of um, give your your side of the story. Yes. So this is the Rocky. This is the chapter. Uh, Penny listeners at the moment, Penny is holding up a copy of the book. And this is chapter five, um, yeah. the Rocky Ricketts show. 
And the dates here, listeners, is with like 1972 to 1978. So I guess yeah. you joined uh, the the group, right? It's not not Rocky Ricketts, but you joined the the workshop. Um, yeah, maybe a couple of years after they first started. So what That's you you right. came in sort of like 71, 72, something like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, About okay. that. So they were getting pretty established and they knew what they were doing and I was trying trying to find out. So I ended up joining in sort of part-time while I was about to start this foundation course in Bristol at Art College. But yeah. all that summer I went on gigs with them. So I went to uh, this first one was with the Rocky Ricketts Pastiche Show. So Rocky Ricketts is like um, was a really young bloke who was playing an aging rock star and so he would he actually I could read you a little bit actually that yeah, go ahead, yeah. explains what it was like so um an aging 50s rock star made a comeback with a rock and roll band and his fabulous rockettes and um Vince Pube who was the manager Vince Pube yeah <laughs> through <laughs> raffle prizes at the name. audience and the finale was Gloria featuring Rocky's The Real Liberation Rap. Make of it what you will. That's the introduction to the chapter. So Brian says, Brian, who played Rocky Ricketts, and that's him with the band there. I'm showing a picture of him with the band sitting around in their green room, and that's Vince mm-hmm. leaning on the door. So Brian says, uh, the premise was simple. Rocky, now past the first flush of, re- of youth, was having yet another comeback. In the fallow times between the peaks and troughs in rock and roll, he was forced back into his day job as a greengrocer in South Acton, a fantasy based on the real-life shop next door to where I was born. Most of Rocky's backstory was based around my own. He'd seen the green-haired rocker Willie Wee Harris at the Chiswick Empire, something that I, age 10, had done. He lived in a council house as I had done. In fact, Rocky was a version of me writ larger than life. So Brian was a really amazing singer and performer and the band were very really good. So they played things like Blue Suede Shoes and stuff like that. And the Rockettes were kind of, again, pastiche backing singers, but sung really well in in tune and everything. So it was it was a really tight outfit and could support a band like the one that um, I encountered on my first gig with them. So I went with them to this um, small town hall in Chippenham, which is a town near to Bath. And we turned up and went into these sort of uh, concrete floor dressing rooms at the back of the thing to get ready to do the Rocky show. And across the way, another group were warming up that we hadn't heard of, and they were the main act. So we looked across and we could see amazing looking people with very glittery clothes, almost as glittery as the ones we had, if not more so. And one of them had like tea strainer um, eye pieces on. And what, another like, had re- like Phil Manzanera, I think. Had what, like, like kind of glasses? Like tea strainers, like like an insect, like insect oh, I- eye. Right, so tea strainers like those those metal um, sort of sieves that you use to strain loosely strain tea. tea. If you're not so, he's got tea. one of them on each eye, so he looks like an That's like right. an insect or something. Yeah, okay. yes, he looked like an yeah. insect. Very very shiny clothes. Another one had a big sort of like ironed sheets of blonde hair, really long hair. It was Eno. Yeah. Um, Ryan Eno, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that this band across the way from us was Roxy Music on their first wow. tour. So we were 
we we weren't majorly impressed because we didn't yet know what Roxy Music was going to become. So, um, and they were amazing. We sort of became fans quite quickly. I don't know, listeners, if it, it, it might be necessary to just flag up the fact that, yeah, Roxy Music, I don't know if everyone out there has heard of them, but certainly in the UK's music scene, they are one of the big groups, one of the big influential bands and um, amazing. I don't know. what They're not really glam rock. I think it's art rock. I think that's technically how to describe them and their music, art rock, mm. this kind of weird sort of avant-garde, um, glamorous group with out- crazy outfits and an amazing yeah, sense of style. Outfits. Kind of 1930s sort of pastiche. We were doing a 1950s pastiche of rock and roll and they were kind of, it was almost art deco and um, sort of very, very sharp hair, all very, very pointed hairstyles and things. Brian Ferry had almost a quiff, didn't he? And, you know, yes. padded shoulders, pointies. It was just an incredible look. And they also had the very first, uh, what was that great synthesizer that Brian Eno had? A was really it a Moog? Synthesizer. Yes. Maybe so a Moog synthesizer or something. But yeah, if you Maybe see videos yeah. of them performing, that that they, there are a few famous performances by Roxy Music on top of the pops. And you see Brian Eno. There, there's, you know, guys with guitars and stuff, pretty conventional. Mm. And then there's Brian Eno. And he's essentially got a what looks like one of those old-fashioned computers. I mean, it probably was. Yes, it was, a big yeah. board with lots of knobs and switches and flashing yes. lights and things on it. And it's like, what on earth is he doing with That's with right, this and stuff? turning knobs and getting these incredible... <laughs> sort of really weird sounds and and that no one had heard before, but integrated into incredible songs, yeah. So, sorry, I'm being a bit of a fangirl now. Oh yeah, well of course mm. it's Roxy Music. Um yes. but yeah, so so you sort of brushed shoulders with um the likes of Roxy Music then and Yeah, I mean that was a real high point. I don't think that was ever exceeded. That was probably the most that was probably the most um famous group I ever kind of was in a next dressing room to. But later on we were organizing all sorts of um festivals that included music and theatre. Um so you know, we, we would organize a festival every, every year. There was a really big summer festival, sometimes on more than one site in the city that the workshop organized. So there would be, um, performances in, um, several venues quite often, some conventional and some, I mean, one year we, we had domes. We made domes out of, um, scaffolding, you know, the first kind of geodesic domes covered with, yeah. um, like Melanex as a venue um, and had a big exhibition of alternative community technology, it was called um, first windmills, solar panels and stuff like that. So groups would come from all over Europe really, and sometimes further afield to um, show different kinds of technology, also different kinds of theater and, you know, things for kids. Allen Ginsberg came one year and, was a real trooper and um trooper that's a funny expression um trooper someone who works really hard and does their part someone yes. who kind of like uh he, yeah pulls their weight and and works hard and you know contributes a lot he he stood in for um i think he said i'll i'll do that cuz there was someone that couldn't appear in a 
in one of the domes one afternoon and there was some teenage kids there who'd been expecting a conjurer, I think, and he went and read to them. And it was a rainy day and the wind was blowing and the melanex on the dome was fluttering about and Allen Ginsberg read from Howell, his poem, and they were a bit heckly at the beginning, the kids, but they calmed down and were really <laughs> entranced. He was very, really good with them. Um, Allen yeah. Ginsberg, li- uh, listeners, viewers, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but a very influential figure, I guess, of the 1950s beat movement and the 1960s yeah, yes. as well. That's right. A sort of a pivotal figure in what became known as the counterculture. Some yes. people call it hippie culture, but as you said, it was kind of like broader than that, encompassed more things than that. Mm. Uh, but yes, he was a poet who had a sort of uh, stream of consciousness style. Yes. And mm. um, as a cultural figure, he's, he's, you know, a big name in this whole movement. Yeah. Um, and um, so it's, and that's impressive that you, that Ginsburg actually came. That must yeah, have been a, is, a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm flagging up these names that are well known, but I mean, there were also the breadth of the program in these festivals was huge. You know, there was, um, we had a whole kind of, we had a hub of each summer. I think there were probably five or six in a row. We had like a, a, a central office that would be like organizing everything. I, I guess other festivals do this, but we had radio telephones one year borrowed from civil aid, which, which was a sort of, um, uh, civil aid was um, a thing where in Britain you had volunteers who were ready if there was an earthquake or something to come and help. So they had equipment and they let us borrow real radio telephones, which before mobiles was the only way you could talk from a van to an office and say, I'm going to this site now and, and I'm going to deliver all the tables for this event and then I'm mm-hmm. coming back mm-hmm. and taking the PA to somewhere else. And so it was a really complex bit of organisation. But lots of local people became involved who wouldn't normally um, uh, get involved in this kind of thing. So there were lots of kids involved and events for older people. And, um, yeah, it was it's, – it's just um, such a complex Stack of, and I think that was what was unique about the workshop was that we organized festivals and arts events and stuff like that and toured our own theater, but also had a day to day activity, which was running a, a shop that sold secondhand clothes and furniture, did removals for people. We organized a Christmas dinner every year for 200 people that wouldn't have a Christmas otherwise. Yeah. I ran an adventure playground. So there were, I think the unique thing about it that I got was um, that I found really um, interesting and hard to actually leave when I went away to to do my full-time art college thing was doing so many different jobs in one day. So I think that was what was unique about it. There were plenty of people um, conventionally organizing theatre or, or community work or um, social events and stuff, but the workshop in any one day, you might be um, doing a house removal in the morning, helping someone or moving a piano or, or you know, doing something like that. And then in the afternoon, you might be making costumes or working in the shop. And then in the evening, you might be doing a rehearsal or driving to another city to do a gig the next day. And then you'd come back the next day and be doing 
office work sorting out the admin. So it was incredible, lot of multitasking, yeah. but with a lot of um, camaraderie and humour always. There was an awful lot of laughing and um, jokes and stuff going on as well. It's almost like a sort of a combination between, as as well as the the, the music performances and things, the, the gigs that you were uh, uh, organising and artistic events, but also like charitable volunteering in the community yeah. and things like that. It's a, a, a wide variety of different things. So uh, mm. more practical sort of um, things like helping people out, as you said, like, well, you said moving pianos, but that might've been for the musical yeah, performances. Was- <laughs> but yeah. but I, I guess like, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to to summarize, isn't it? This this mm. thing it seems like quite a large and uh, complex uh, organism it. that yes. was involved in many different things. But what was the sort of central? You may have mentioned this already, but no, what was the kind of central principle or aim of this? Because it seems mm. from it can seem like a bit of a chaotic kind of thing yes. where. All these yeah. people are doing these things, and and listeners and viewers might be thinking it's all a bit vague and a bit sort of nebulous. Like what? What's yes? What's I know. The point, I know. You know. I think. Yes, I, could I don't do. mean to. I don't. No, no, you're quite right. You're quite right to push it. What was the point? I think the point was to try and change. I think the ethos that Phil brought from um, Drury Lane Arts Lab. I think what he was after, because he he did he did kind of focus focus the group a lot um and i think the idea was to have an open organization that anyone really could join in with if they were willing to so it was potentially chaotic but somehow it wasn't it was quite a strong um central hub for arts and community so it was called community arts the whole thing and i think if it had you know, one thing was premises. You know, we, we had a really good premises for a while that was a rehearsal space and a place you could, you know, uh, cook yeah. and have an office and everything. Um, but uh, after a while, we had to move out of there because of the neighbours. It was a bit noisy having evening shows next to these little houses down a side yeah. road. So then we had a shop with an office above it, but had to hire places to do events or do outside events so there was always a hub and an office planning things and we had tons of meetings you know quite tightly organized meetings saying what's going to happen this week we've got the you know theater touring we've got these music events people need to work on the adventure playground the allotment the removals the christmas dinner you know all of it came together under one roof effectively and the motivation was just to make art and fun and um joining in available to more people than would normally contact it but it was it's, a strange it's, mm. in some ways it reminds me of some things that you get today like yeah. certain like music festivals if you think of glastonbury and things like that the things that go on there and the general spirit the mood of the of the event is this mm. very inclusive thing where people can do interesting, inspiring um, activities that everyone's involved and stuff. But these days, when you think of music festivals and things, still the bottom line is still kind of about making a profit. Mm. That, that a lot of these things are business ventures, ultimately. That They've got great sort of um, 
you know, they involve great activities and things, but the, the profit is the bottom line in many yeah. cases. It's hard to find any kind of organized movement that isn't ultimately about, you know, making, making some money. But mm. I get the impression the Bath Arts Workshop was not, that was not the, the bottom line, that it no. was actually about, as you say, creating a sort of a, um, a, um, a space in which people can just, people could express themselves and, and in which that was democratic, that would be somehow healthy for the general culture. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, um, you've done well there. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Good summing up. Cause it can sound a bit, um, an, an, like a complete, like it can sound chaotic. And I mean, I found the music part, the bit that I was most intrigued by myself and, and the, um, the graphic arts, you know, because I ended up being an illustrator, but I spent a lot of time designing posters and brochures and things like that. Um, but there was room for everybody to use their, uh, skills to, that they had, you know, some were absolute brilliant comedians, some like, um, Phil I've mentioned was an incredible organizer of people and inspire, inspire, inspiring, but without being a big head at all, you know, he's a very modest bloke, but very mm. good at kind of, um, summing up better than I am at what the ethos was, um, mm. And then there were incredible actors within it. Um, Ralph Oswick, who played the manager in Rocky Ricketts, and Brian Poppe and Jackie Poppe as well. Really brilliant actors. And then other people who were technologists. So there was Thornton and Glynn who, and, and Rick Knapp who started to evolve salvage and reuse of building materials, making domes, making windmills, um, uh, what else? Solar, solar panels and stuff like that. And they're all still involved in that kind of work now. But this was knitted together by regular meetings and trying to get premises together and stuff to make these things work and make them just viable. It wasn't to make money. It was to make mm. it happen. So that was, that was the difference. The, the financial side, side was always a bit precarious. But after a while, the reputation we had for bringing theatre together from all over the country and for organising the technology events and stuff like that um, meant that we attracted some funding from the Arts Council, which kept the theatre company going and paid for the, the building and stuff. And we got, you know, checked by the Arts Council quite often. All the accounts had to be proper and everything. We mm -hmm. made some money from gigs. We made some money from selling secondhand furniture and clothes. And we got a lot of the props from the clothes in the shop. Um, I think I'm right in saying that some of the most useful characters we had for expressing, you know, <laughs> anything almost, were these characters called the normals. Uh, we got some dinner suits into the shop and the normals uh, wore black dinner suits, girls and boys, black turtleneck um, sweaters, bowler hats, which are those hats you see in Britain in, in the city. I don't know if anyone wears them anymore. Um, yeah. The classic uh, got, sort of gentleman's bowler hat. Yeah. Um, I've got a picture yeah. of a normal here for anyone that's watching the video. There's a picture There's, of There are some normals you see with a Ooh. traffic warden. Too oh, normal, kind, of, weird. kind yeah. of sinister, and they wore yeah. um, white gloves and then silver, very glittery silver masks over their faces. 
So they were kind of anonymous looking and they moved in formation, usually three or four of them in a row and was quite silent. They never spoke, but they would they could do anything from sort of massaging a car, saying, aren't cars marvellous? And then they'd snap to attention and march off. And often we'd do normals in shopping precincts and things like that. And they'd Mm -hmm. gather around someone with a big bag of shopping and just clap like that around the person and then do a (laughs) namaste and then march off. Or they'd do something quite, um, you know, like posing around a scat round a statue. Anyway, they were very funny and very useful characters. And if you did them in a kid's play scheme or something, you'd get kicked a lot if you were doing a normal thing, you know. The kids, kid, normal, the kids would, yeah, kids would often kids would come kick them. It sort of, again, reminds me of some um, things you might see today, like, you know, sort of stuff that happens where you get these, these random moment, random bits of performance in the street. Yes. So yes. in those, when you were doing it, it was like a brand new idea that, you know, hadn't really been done before. Street theatre was days, a newer it is, thing. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yes. If you go it's to kind the of festival. everywhere a little bit now where yes. there's like a flash mob or, um, <laughs> yes. you know, something along those lines. Coloured um, statues, people all dressed in blue being very still. Well, yeah, but that, yeah, yeah those street performers. But no, mm. I mean, yeah, other types of uh, unexpected street uh, performance. I mean, uh um, wasn't there one that happened in London a couple of, when was it, 15 years ago or something, mm. that suddenly one day on Oxford Street uh, all, the, there were all these performers that suddenly turned up and they had a big mechanical <laughs> elephant that walked down the street or something? Yes, do you remember that? Do you, yeah. do, you, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Something about that, yes. I, think I can't so, remember yeah. who that was, but that would have been mm. some other group that specialised in doing those sorts of things. Mm. But, uh, yeah, this is the... The sort of thing we're talking about but you were kind of doing it um we were doing uh, that I, I guess it was fairly new but the the other groups that used to come to bath for the festivals sometimes they'd be like i don't know 50 maybe that's too many but 25 i don't know lots of theater groups would come and all visit the theater, visit the city during the summer while we had our festival so you'd see things popping up everywhere like you do now in edinburgh or or at a pop festival where there's lots of street performance but yeah. there'd be all sorts of people doing things and you'd think is that real is that a real thing or not but it meant that you know the theater was right there in front of people so it was the beginning of all of that but overall the organization was quite tight but I think what made people like me have to leave in the end was that it was just, ri- you know, I really wanted to do art at art college. And, and I mean, I loved being there and I could easily have got stayed there forever if I hadn't really wanted to go to art college, but there just wasn't time to do um, drawing and painting and stuff like that. Cause it was very all consuming and busy, but, um, mm-hmm. but brilliant, brilliant fun. Mm. Maybe just sort of as we get to the end of this part of the conversation, maybe we can talk a little bit about impact, um, mm. either like impact that this had on culture in general or just impact that it had on you personally. Mm. What, what about the impact of the Bath Arts Workshop? Well, I think um, it's legacy is the word now, isn't it? Legacy, yes, <laughs> legacy. of course. There's a good word. Yeah, <laughs> Yes. Legacy. The, 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 yeah. The, yeah. The impact that something has over time, the, the, the way it builds a kind of, um, 
story that continues on. I mean, people talk about mm. personal legacy, which is like, mm. um, oh God, thinking of a good example that mm. at when someone who is a public figure, for example, might decide that they want to leave a certain legacy, which is like a, uh, um, yes. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you're, yes. Legacy would be like what the impact that is left, the imprint that something has on culture over time. So, um, so if we talk about the legacy of the Beatles, I mean, I always use the Beatles as my example. Yeah, it's, yes. it's kind of easy to use them as an example for most things. But the legacy of the Beatles is that they left us with this story and they left us with these songs that will kind of last for a long time, that mm -hmm. will continue through time. This is what we mean by the legacy. So the legacy of the Bath Arts Workshop it came to an end at the end of the 70s, right? Officially, kind of yes, thing. Yes, officially. But it, that, there were strands that never, that, that were not broken. So I think, I mean, in fact, um, I'm just, just going to reach for something. Okay. <laughs> Wisely removing the headphones before you reach. I actually wrote my college thesis because after Bath Arts Workshop, I left in 1974. And in fact, Phil, who founded it, really left in 1974 um, and went to work in the arts in London for a while and went to South America because he wanted to um, be there for, for for, for various reasons, um, mm -hmm. I went to art college and wrote a thesis at the end of my fine art course, and and this is um, this is a the cover of it, so you can just see it's a kind of a montage of all the things the workshop did. There's a couple of rockets in the centre there. So so yeah, so you did a thesis about the the. the... So I wrote all about it and and the sort of conclusion of what the legacy and what was the lasting um, impact of it, and I think what happened there was a bit of a crossroads because the workshop was trying to find a premises where this kind of the ethos and the and the work could continue, but with a better base. So there was a building down the road that we wanted to take over. Um, the council weren't keen. In the end, it, we didn't get permission to do it, but that would have been a, a constant arts hub with, you know, rehearsal space. Pay. There are places like this now where the workshop could have been based and and opened itself out much more to the local community because we would have had more space, physical space. But what did last were all sorts of Basically, everyone had to specialise in the end. So I think it was the complexity and running it as all these things together was difficult. But the theatre company itself, called Natural Theatre, was named after a cider called Natural Dry, by the way, not like natural. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, small, small nice, note. nice to name name it after after a cider. Good idea. Local local Somerset cider. So the natural mm. theatre company survives to this day and is in fact thriving. Uh, is is still doing street theatre and and, and specialises in that kind of thing rather than indoor shows like I talked about at the beginning. Um, the alternative technology or the com community technology um, founded all kinds of things. Thornton, who was involved in that, now runs Salvo, which is a big re building materials reuse thing that goes right through Europe. Um, and uh, Glynn is still doing architectural projects that, I mean, lots of people are 
doing what they did best in the workshop. So. Yeah, so the, the the workshop almost was sort of a great way to learn skills and everyone kind of yes. learned all these things and then went off and applied mm. them in different ways, including you. So did, mm. did you... Did you learn about illustration during during this time? I mean, how how did this then set you up? How did this set you up for your career as an illustrator then? Well, I think I was always, you know, drawing as a kid and stuff and liked to draw and had got a place on a foundation course when I met the workshop. So I did, you know, I took A-level art twice. I took it early. I got I got a D twice. <laughs> My brother got an A. So I ended so up. Wait, you took it you took it once, you studied for like two years yes. and you got a D and then you're like, damn, I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> yes, you, the and then you said, got another D. Oh, she's good at drawing. Put her in early. So I did it early and got a D and then I got it again. So <laughs> it must have been something I needed to learn still. Anyway. So I did that and then um when I was with the workshop I was drawing all the time and again people might not well won't be able to see this if they're just listening but this is a picture I did of what one of the festivals would look like on the back of a brochure and you could see there's Georgian houses there in a row and a dome Mm -hmm. and a puppet show and a bus and lots of people it looks a bit like a where's Wally scene I could say (laughs) in black and white yes um so that was something I did and then this um because I grew up with a lot of um, – my father collected old magazines and stuff, like old Strand magazines and Punch, and had loads of copies of The New Yorker he used to get from a friend. So I saw a lot of cartoons when I was growing up. And this was an invitation to one of the workshop Christmas dinners, which is a sort of pastiche um, or a homage to Punch, and it's a Victorian kind of image. Yeah, uh, sort, of sort of white of thing. In those very old Sherlock Holmes books that have bits of artwork in them. Yes. Right? Yes. Is that kind of style? Very much um, so, yes. You yeah, see that see. punch so, character there holding a giant Christmas pudding. Okay. So yes, so that's another and then just finally this is the other thing this is the other thing. There was a, a brochure in Bath at the time. Um that looked very much like this. Sorry about the holes down the side. So this is a picture of the Royal Crescent in Bath or half of it and on yeah. the actual Bath City guide it had the, a perfect picture of the Royal Crescent like that on the back as well but this was a little brochure about the workshop it shows the kids there in the play scheme and other mm-hmm. bits and pieces but on the back of this brochure that I did is the Royal Crescent with a motorway coming through it with lots of cranes and wrecking balls and bulldozers and stuff and this was just a comment um at the time quite a bit of bath was being knocked down before people realized how important a lot of the architecture was so the royal crescent didn't actually ever have a motorway come through it but you know that was just yeah (laughs) so obviously obviously i was sort of you know flexing the drawing thing a bit And in fact, I took a a whole gap year before I went and did my degree. I took a year out to work with a workshop full time. So I did my foundation course after the first summer working with them um, and did things in the evening and in holidays. And then I had a whole year full time and ended up learning how to do um, electrics and lighting. And, you know, I liked all the techie stuff of 
setting up gigs and music events. Yeah. Yeah. What a fantastic project and something that was, you know, about just having ideas and, and uh, being creative mm. and, uh, and just so many different things happening all at the same time and not just all about, um, mm. not just all about making money, but with other uh, higher minded uh, ideas in place. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, think that sort of thing could happen today? I don't know. I mean, we've we've been talking about that because the nice thing about writing a book about all of this is that we've all realised um, what were the strengths and what were the difficulties with it. But I mean, all of us learnt about collaboration in a way that we can't imagine. I mean, you do that in all kinds of job settings, but you wouldn't find yourself stepping sideways to such a huge extent as in that environment where you would find yourself doing, you know, um, you know, like yeah. digging an allotment one day or joining, digging, digging in an electric cable or starting up a generator or, you know, all kinds of things. I never would have thought now and again, I had to say, I'll do that because nobody else had said it. So <laughs> you found yourself doing things and with a responsibility because it was a real event and you couldn't not do it to actually get it right and learn it. So I think all of us took away from the workshops that kind of, a wider collaborative um, uh, sense or experience than we would have got from a more specialised environment or job. Um, and now um, we were saying when we were just talking about doing the book that um, it's much we it was much easier for us then. You know, our rents were like nothing. You know, we could rent big, big flats, big Georgian flats with. Mm. great big windows and stuff for a quarter of our meager wages you know we we earned about 12 pounds a week i think which was probably the equivalent of 250 now or something maybe not that much yeah. it wasn't much um and half of that was food and a quarter was bills and a quarter was rent and, and we could manage on that so you know nowadays it would be you know people young people can't even afford rent quite often and have to live with their folks or you know save and save it's crazy um and we also like could could get grants and support to do what we were doing so it's much harder now but in fact there's much more of a need in a way for people to find some alternative um things ways to um counter what's going on because it's a very difficult time for the planet and for social life and stuff and very hard, you know, to make enough to actually just live in a reasonable way, you know, for loads of people. So, you know, maybe it's time that, you know, we all got back together again and did more than just write a book about it. I don't know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. indeed. Well, Penny, thank you for talking to us all about it. And uh, the book, yeah, the book's called Bath Arts Workshop, Counterculture in the 1970s. I'll show Available from all good bookshops. Good bookshops. And bad ones too, probably, we hope. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there it is. You can see it on the screen, ladies and gents. There we are. Um, da, 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 da. Lovely. Now, uh, okay. that's kind of the end of part one then. And what we'll do now is talk about uh, make, writing and illustrating children's books okay so that's going to be in part two so we're now going to stop part one and uh, viewers listeners you can find part two i don't know where it'll be i don't know if it's uploaded yet 
but have a look you might find it otherwise it'll be the next thing to be uploaded onto uh, this podcast but penny thank you very much for talking to us thank you it was great fun i enjoyed it i'm not sure if it made any sense but <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what people say. Okay. Right. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> right. That's the end of that. Five. Stop. I don't know. What do you do? How do you stop? You don't do that. That's how you start action in movies, right? Yeah. You, have um, you don't do that yeah. at the end. Cut. That's it. Yeah. Cut. Cut. You don't do that. No. Not that no, one. That means shut just... up. Wind it up. <laughs> yeah. And then, okay. Cut. So that was Penny Dale talking about the baths, the baths? No, just what the one. Shall I start again? I think I probably should. Okay, no edits. Right. So what was I saying? I was saying this. So that was Penny Dale talking about the bath arts workshop. You try saying that quickly on a podcast. The bath arts workshop. All right. Anyway, that was Penny talking about the Bath Arts Workshop. Thanks again to Penny for that. That was that was not the right way to say that sentence. It should sound like this. Thanks again to Penny for that. I found it very interesting and it makes me think about my parents' generation and the approach that many of them had to things. You know, that whole baby boom generation and the counterculture movement in general which I suppose includes things like the beat poets, hippies, and all that stuff. I especially think of the music and the general ethos, which was the, I I suppose, the idea that they could change the world with love, basically, rather than with force, you know? Change the world with love. Um, Make love, not war. You know, were they idealistic? You know, were they just idealistic and naive or not? Um, it's, I don't know, really. I don't see what's wrong with a bit of peace, love and understanding myself. Love is all you need, right? That's what they said. But yeah, love is what you need. Yes, I suppose so. But a bit of cash, a nice car, a decent apartment, maybe a new computer. And uh, to have someone come round and fix our washing machine. Oh, and a, and a pair of shoes that fit me right and don't squeeze the sides of my toes. All those things would definitely help. They're not mutually exclusive, Luke. You know, you can have all of those things together. You know, you don't just because... Yeah. Anyway, don't let me interrupt you. Carry on. All right. You're doing fine. Um, I don't know, really. Uh, but I do think that the Bath Arts Workshop sounds like a, a quite a beautiful venture, if you ask me. And it sounds like they had some great fun while doing it, and so on and so forth. I could go on, uh, but I won't. Um, But I'm curious to know what you thought of the subject and uh, the movement. Uh, You can leave your comments in the comments section as usual, if you have them. If you don't have comments, don't leave them in the comments section. Well, I mean, you, you know, you just... How would you do that? How would you leave a comment if you don't have a comment? I don't know. That's we're going to get lost in some sort of logical fallacy or something of some kind. I don't know, uh, but there we go. Um, so here we are. Hello there. Hello. Yes, you're still listening to the podcast. Nice one. Did you manage to follow this conversation? Huh? How was it? 
Did you manage to follow it? You know, I said things before, like, you know, things that could have made it difficult, obviously just language, like the vocabulary, but also, you know, the fact that we were speaking at a natural speed. So you get all of that stuff that native speakers of any language do, right? Because, you know, you might think that native speakers speak perfect English, flawless English all the time, but native speakers of all languages will do things like make false starts. That's where you start to say one thing, you know, you you start to say one thing and just as you're saying it, you kind of decide to start a new sentence. And so you, you get these things called false starts, which can be distracting. Everyone does it in their native language. You just don't even realize it maybe sometimes that you kind of maybe say a part of a sentence and then you start a new sentence, those sorts of things. And also the usual things like connected speech, the way that all our words will join up together. It makes it harder to um, identify where one end, one word ends and another one starts. You know, those are the sorts of linguistic features uh, that may have been a barrier for you understanding this. But I, I did mention other things too, like cultural reference points. Like, do you know who Brian Eno is? Do you know Roxy Music. Some of you definitely will. I mean, some of you definitely will know some of the names that came up here, like bands like Hawkwind. Um, Hawkwind were mentioned in this conversation. Hawkwind, wow, what a band they were. Uh, sort of, oh, um, quite a radical, uh, psychedelic rock band, a space rock band, I think they, they're known as. Who, who, was, who was in Hawkwind? Do you know? I'm, I'm talking to the sort of rock fans here. Uh, well, you know Lemmy from Motorhead, the famous Levy. Le- Levy? No, that's... <laughs> you're thinking Led Zeppelin, Luke, when the Levy breaks. No, Lemmy from Motorhead. You know, the Ace of Spades! That guy. Down, 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 down. The Ace of Spades! Motorhead. Well, before Lemmy was in Motorhead, before he set up Motorhead, he was in Hawkwind. Ah, so, the, you know, all these things are connected. So there was Hawkwind, there was Roxy Music, Brian Eno. Some of you will know Brian Eno's these days perhaps more famous for his ambient music. One of the kind of founders of ambient music as we know it now. Uh, f- some amazing uh, atmospheric ambient albums that he made. But he also was a producer. He worked with David Bowie and stuff. I know so you know you might have noticed those things you'd be like oh oh brian eno i know that you know i know this uh alan ginsburg you know people like that but if you don't know any of those references you might have been a bit lost and also vocabulary as well just the sort of you know we were trying to explain or describe a quite a complex and um um diverse artistic movement and so you know you've got to get quite specific in those situations and that's where all of the specific vocab comes into play. Um, so, yeah, lots of stuff there that might have made it uh, 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 difficult. Remember, I said at the beginning that I would put a vocabulary list on the website page for this episode. Well, I've done that um, with some words or phrases that I think might have been hard or which are worth picking up from the conversation. So have a look. That will definitely help. If you have a look, 
as I said before, it won't help if you don't have a look. It doesn't just me putting stuff on a website doesn't magically transfer words through the ether into your brain and then out of your mouth. You know, you do actually have to look at the words and work on them a little bit. As you probably know, I didn't need to say that. Ah, just joking around. So, yeah, I'm planning to do a premium episode in which I fly through that word list, just kind of clarifying bits and pieces a bit. Um, On the subject of, like, premium stuff, sometimes I think I might go into too much detail in those premium episodes. But it's very... It's very difficult not to, you know. You get drawn into the specifics of all the, you know, what the words, not just what the words mean, but how they, like, typically connect or collocate with other words and, you know, lots of examples and things, you know. But, um, so, yeah, sometimes I think I might go into too much detail in those premium episodes. Um, And it's probably okay to just to say a few things about each bit of target language each time. So I think I will aim to do a kind of express premium episode uh, with this vocab list as a way to recap and highlight some nice language from this conversation. So that's something for the premium Lepsters to look out for. Um, Yeah, if you want to sign up to LEP Premium, be my guest, of course. Um, That's, uh, you know, that's a good way to help me, you know, buy a new computer maybe, which would certainly make life a little easier for me when it comes to encoding videos and getting work done just like i mean this can be i said before this, i've been using this since 2013 this has been a oh it's been a, a, a real trooper this computer it's been a real workhorse and but it's starting to play up now um I, when i was editing this episode the computer just crashed it's like my computer just went ah no i just can't i can't even I just, you know, it's just like, just give me, give me a few minutes. Uh, and I was like, okay, computer. Thankfully, uh, I managed to recover the files and all that stuff. But, oh, I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need my computer letting me down. It's been a great, as I said, workhorse, this computer. But um, I think it might be time to take it down to the knacker's yard and turn it into a, and sell it off to the knacker's yard and where it's going to get turned into glue or something. That's what they used to do with horses, you know. When the horses are done, you know, when it was basically knackered, when a horse is old and tired, you'd send it off to the knacker's yard, a place that would buy old and tired horses. And then, well, I guess, I don't know what would happen to the horses, but some have said that the horses would be then, well, used for other purposes. And, oh, I I shouldn't really talk about it, should I really? Uh, except for there's one person go please tell us in detail about the what they did to those old horses no rambling i'm rambling so much here uh but anyway i'll try and do a, an express premium episode uh if you want to sign up to lep premium you'll get all of the episodes you get access to all of them there's tons of them now there's like a whole other podcast of over 100 episodes where i'm just breaking down language just doing vocab and grammar and pronunciation and hopefully bringing a bit of sort of fun and normal pod, you know, LEP stuff to to uh, those episodes too. Um, you can get all the episodes in the Luke's English Podcast app, and you can get them online. Uh, but you need to sign up uh, first, and it's it's like a reasonable price. If you want to get all the information, um, just go to teacherluke.co.uk uh, slash premium info. 
Okay, and that will tell you everything you need to know. I think so. I think that page pretty much tells you all the stuff you need to know. Uh, so if you ever have questions about LEP Premium, teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info. Right, so let's have a mini ramble here. I mean, we, we're already full flow, aren't we? We're already in the ramble zone. It looks like I've been going for about 20 minutes. Is it? No, no. Oh, no, no, no. What are you talking about, Luke? No, I got confused there for a second. Oh, is it 20 minutes? No, it's more like uh, 13 minutes or something. Oh, there's a big difference. Those seven minutes. Anyway, let's have a mini ramble here. And this is one of those times when I'm I'm actually, I'm doing a combination of a written ramble and a spontaneous ramble. What does that mean? Well, I mean that some of the things I'm saying are written down in advance and some of the stuff I'm just spontaneously saying off the top of my head. This is a mix. Which makes it difficult when you're trying to read the a transcript with me because it's like, oh, he's, he keeps leaving the transcript and saying other things. So anyway, a mix. Um, a written ramble to an extent. Writing things down which I will record when the time is right. Well, the time is right now because I'm obviously recording it now. I like to mix up spontaneous speech and pre-written speech on this podcast. Uh, there are good and bad points of both. Mainly the advantage of spontaneous speech is that it's more natural and authentic. You know, it's kind of like you can sort of hear my brain moving while I'm speaking. Does that make sense? Um, I suppose so. You know, you get the... You can... You know it's happening when it's... You know it's sort of uh, spontaneous because, yeah, you can kind of almost see the cogs of my uh, old and small brain trying to turn as the words come out of my mouth uh, so that that's more uh, natural and authentic uh, right and therefore probably a bit more human and engaging but the advantage of pre-written stuff is that I can get some more control over what I'm saying anyway I am still rambling here pre-written or not or a combination of the two so yeah my computer has stopped making that loud noise um, did I mention that before? I don't know. In at the beginning of the episode, I, I pointed it out. Like, oh, can you hear that hissing sound? That's my not the fan in my computer. But it stopped doing that uh, because it's not trying to. It's given up basically for the evening. Um, I mean, it's still working, but it's it failed to encode the video, the video version of this episode. By the way, all of this rambling nonsense is not in the video. You only get this in the audio episode. So, oh, doesn't it, doesn't it feel special? Um, but anyway, my computer failed to encode the video because there wasn't enough storage space left on the hard drive. You know, that that old problem. I'm sure you know that the situation. Hard drive storage just gets eaten up so easily. And, um, you know, it's, I should have checked in advance, but you don't always do that, do you? You know, us humans, we don't do things like checking stuff in advance. Anyway, not only do I have to keep my flat tidy, and organized right not only do i have to keep my life tidy and organized i also have to keep my computer tidy and organized and free of clutter this is the world we live in and also i have to keep my phone tidy and free of clutter as well right and my cloud storage account and my daughter's life as well it's just this is the world we live in uh but i will try encoding the video again later after throwing a, lo- a load of unwanted files into the trash or, or rubbish bin, as it should be called, 
if computers were British. There's a good idea for a bit of stand-up, isn't it? If computers were British, you could do a whole thing on that, couldn't you? Someone needs to make a funny video, funny YouTube video called If Computers Were British. It would be very funny and full of all those funny British jokes, but through the medium of computers. Like they'd, they, it wouldn't be the trash; it would be the rubbish bin. And things that are funnier than that. I mean, I'm, you know, you, someone else do that one. Okay. So what's going on in podcast land? Well, I'm I'm recording this late on a Friday evening. Yeah, this is how I spend my Friday evenings. Well, this particular Friday evening. So yeah, I'm recording this late on a Friday evening. Maybe because I've got nothing better to do. Well, you know, I could be watching TV or reading a book, playing the guitar, or just going out and raving it up in a nightclub. God, when was the last time I did that? It's been a quite, it's been a quite a long time. Um, But, you know, I could be doing any number of those things, but my wife and daughter are both asleep downstairs. So I thought that I would take this opportunity. What? (laughs) Sometimes your tongue just goes, "Uh uh-uh, it's the weekend. (laughs) That's it. No more speaking. I'm finished. The tongue, the computer, they've both retired for the evening. No. Okay, let's try that again. What was I saying? So my wife and daughter are both asleep downstairs, and so I thought I'd take this opportunity to catch up on a bit of podcasting. So I'm recording this probably before recording episode 750. Uh huh. This is episode 751, I think. Is it? Can you just check? Check your, check your podcast player, or don't check. You know, you don't have to. But I think this, you're listening to episode 751 now, which the thing is, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to upload this after episode 700 and what? Yeah. So I'm recording episode 751 now. This is this one, which I will upload after episode 750 because that's how numbers work. But I haven't recorded episode 750 yet. How confusing is my life. Sorry, I should rename that. How confusing is my podcast? I don't know. Does that make sense? I have a vague plan for episode 750, probably something about being busy because I'm very busy at the moment. And so I just thought, well, I might as well do something about being busy and sort of the language that you can use to describe those times when you're very busy. Uh, So I've got a vague episode then for episode 750. Uh, I like to record and publish in the same order, you know. So, for example, recording episode uh, seven and then publishing episode seven and then recording episode eight and publishing episode eight. You understand the idea. So I like to publish, uh, record and publish in the same order. So there's at least some sense of continuity. I know some podcasters will record something and then leave it for ages and sort of build up a big bank of pre-recorded content, which they can then publish in any order they want, right? And just kind of publish things in a different order to how they recorded. But personally, I prefer to just publish and record as soon as possible. So if I've recorded an episode, that's the next one that's going to go out. I like to do it. Basically, I like queuing. You know, I'm British, so I like things to be in a queue. Like, okay, who's next? Okay, you're next. No jumping the queue, please. You know, that's how I like to do it. But um, so I think, yeah, okay. So uh, I don't know what I will say in episode 750. I've got a vague idea, as I said. So 
but th- this means that I don't know what you have already heard me say, right? Because even though right now I haven't recorded that episode yet, there's a good chance that you're listening to this later and in your world, you might have already listened to episode 750. So I wonder what I said in that episode. Or should that be, I wonder what I will say, or even I wonder what I will have said. We've been in, we've been in this situation before. Um, but here we are, we're, we're here again um, in that weird limbo land where all those different verb tenses are possible right? Uh, I wonder what I said. Uh, I wonder what I will say. I wonder what I will have said. Now, some people are confused now, even more confused than they were earlier. I, sorry, but stick with me because it can be fun to feel confused sometimes. Everything's going to be okay in the end. Um, anyway, right. You know what? I think I will call it a day here in a moment. Maybe I've, I've got maybe a couple of minutes left of rambling before all systems fail and I just sort of pass out on the floor or just stretched, like slump over, just slam on the computer like that. Ugh. Wake up in the morning with like the, the shape, of, you know, the imprint of all the keys in my face. What, what year is it? Who's the president? Uh, but I think I'll call it a day here in a moment. I said before that things are a bit intense in my life at the moment. Not right now. This is a nice calm moment where people are sleeping and it's all calm in Lepland, as uh, one of the competition entries from a recent episode uh, stated. Nice idea. All calm in Lepland at the moment. But generally in life, things are a little bit intense and busy. I am certainly not complaining, not at all, but I have a lot on my plate which means I've got less time for recording and editing and stuff. Uh, And this means that I have lots of ideas building up in my head, podcast ideas. They sort of come to me at various moments, like when I'm teaching in the classroom. uh, And I kind of, oh, I should should do that to turn that into a podcast. Or maybe when I'm walking to work or when I'm walking home. Like those those in-between moments, you know. But then I can't really turn those ideas into podcasts because of time constraints. But I'm trying to note them down for later. Why am I telling you this? I, I'm not, I don't know, really. I'm just speaking my mind. I'm just getting things off my chest sort of thing. Working things out. Cathartic. It's quite cathartic doing a podcast. You get to kind of, you get the freedom to just sort of speak your mind. It's, it's healthy. I do think it's healthy to do that. You know, I, I used to write a diary, as, as many of you might know. I read some pages from it once. Hopefully that wasn't oversharing. But I used to write a diary as to write all my thoughts down and regularly. These days, that doesn't really fit into my routine anymore. But to an extent, the podcast is a bit like that. I don't want to overshare, but it's a bit like a diary. And I think that's a healthy thing. I think everyone should probably do that. You know, put your thoughts into words, express yourself. Your feelings need to come out in some way. Um, you could do it in English. I think that would be a very good idea. Why not write a diary in English? It doesn't have to be long. Just a, even just a few sentences uh, The in the evening. If you can fit that into your routine, that would be a good idea. I'm, I'm serious. It'd be very healthy for your English and probably healthy for you too. Anyway, I expect I'm repeating myself here, talking about being busy, because I have a vague idea that I'll talk about being busy and having things on your plate in episode 750. So no need to continue at the risk of repeating myself, which is obviously a shocking crime, 
that must be met with the harshest of punishments. Repeating yourself. <gasps> you know, as the prison door closes and the lock is is locked. And, you know, the prison guards are like, do you know what he's in for? What did he do? And, you know, he repeated himself on a podcast. <gasps> lock, throw away the key. Anyway. Uh, okay. So the next episode will also be with Penny. So episode 752, right? That episode will also be with Penny, Penny Dale. And it's all about how she creates books for children. And this is actually a bit of a scoop. A scoop is like a uh, a great exclusive uh, sort of great story that a journalist would get. Um, I mean, you know, it's a bit of a scoop for the podcast because Penny is actually a really successful author of children's books. They've won awards. They're in all the, the bookshops. One of her books was read out on a popular BBC TV kids program by Rob Delaney, who is a popular comedian. You know, and her work is really great. Her illustrations in particular are absolutely lovely, very cute and adorable. So in episode 752, we can hear her talk about her process of creating these books. And it's a nice, cosy topic. And I think it should be of interest to most Lepsters. So that's something to look forward to. All right. So I think this is a good moment to stop. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Speak to you again soon on the podcast. No song this time. I'm not ready. I don't have anything ready. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, all right. I don't know if you're disappointed or not. Uh, but, you know, singing will return um, at some point. But anyway, speak to you again on the podcast soon in some format. But now it's just time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.